Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 48 and it was recorded on Thursday, March 11, 2021. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and the CEO of Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our fourth episode of 2021. In this episode, we were joined by Andrew Mosker, President and CEO of the National Music Centre in Calgary, Bronwyn Dearlove, Senior Development Officer, Annual Fund and Database at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, and Michelle Stanner, Senior Counsel with Vitreo Group. Our topic, Trends in Arts and Culture Philanthropy. Fundraising for the arts is challenging under normal circumstances, and these times are far from normal. We have a global economy that was weak going into the pandemic and is just now starting to recover. And we continue to have health restrictions that are disproportionately affecting arts and culture organizations. Join me as the four of us discuss how COVID-19 has impacted arts and culture fundraising and what the sector is doing about it. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 48 of Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Betrayal. This is our fourth episode of 2021. Our topic, trends in arts and culture philanthropy. We've got three great guests with us today, all experts in arts and culture in Canada. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Ottawa, we have Bronwyn Dearlove. Bronwyn is a Senior Development Officer, Annual Fund and Database at National Arts Centre in Ottawa. This is Bronwyn's first time on a podcast. We're so glad you chose us. Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, Bronwyn. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Bronwyn and I have known each other for a number of years. We both serve on national committees and boards with the Association of Fundraising Professionals. And pre-pandemic, we look forward to seeing our friends and colleagues at gatherings across the country. Soon, Bronwyn, soon. In doing our show prep, I shared with Bronwyn that we're about to get a new puppy in our house. It's it's a very exciting time. Bronwyn let me know that she also has a new puppy in her home, a corgi named Gimli. Bronwyn, before we hear from you on what's happening in arts and culture uh, fundraising, can you share with us a bit more about your new puppy and what you learned that you did not know about corgis? So we've learned plenty, Um, but yes, uh, mine is one of the many families out there who have taken on that pandemic puppy. Um, So our corgi is five months old. Um, Corgis are the breed perhaps best known as the favorite of the queens. Um, And uh, we're a family of nerds. So when it came to naming this little guy, we noted his short and stocky build and his fearless and stubborn demeanor and any fellow nerds out there probably seeing where I'm going here, the Scottish brogue that he would no doubt speak with if he could. And uh, so we named him after Gimli the Dwarf from, from Lord of the Rings. So <laughs> Not Gimli Manitoba, but the Dwarf from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, you are Corgis, a nerd. Yeah, Corgis have been described as agile tanks. And mm. so far that seems pretty apt mm. for, for Gimli. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, did they were they bred to do something? Did you say that already? And I missed it for cattle. Yeah, uh, so these these tiny little dogs with short little legs, and they're bred to herd cattle. So they are fearless and stubborn. Wow, <laughs> wow. that's crazy. Thanks, Bronwyn, for sharing that. I appreciate. Um, next, joining us from right here in Calgary is Andrew Mosker. 
Andrew is the president and CEO of the National Music Center. I think Andrew has been on a podcast or two before this, but this is his first visit with us. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Great to be here, Vince. Thanks for having me. I first met Andrew when we worked together at the National Music Center as the National Music Center was being built. Uh, our team worked alongside Andrew and his team to help raise the funds to bring the building uh, and the National Music Center to life. Andrew, like Bronwyn, you and your team are trying to raise operational funds for your organizations in the middle of a pandemic. We're going to hear more about what that's like in a few minutes. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about how a private piano museum in Calgary became one of Canada's newest national cultural institutions. Well, it was a bit of an epiphany back in the early 2000s, uh, this sort of cabinet of curiosities that you could only see by appointment called the Cantos Music Foundation, which is which was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a piano and keyboard museum, uh, electronic music instruments, but primarily pianos. I think the 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 light went on one day. I was walking up to the sidewalk to the building and the door was locked. And there was, I was watching someone, some member from the public desperately trying to get into the building and trying to unlock the door. And I remember looking at that as a sort of a symbol of, we need to open up this incredible collection to the community and build something way more publicly accessible with it instead of it being known as Calgary's best kept secret in the cultural space. So we did quite a bit of work uh, looking around the world around how countries celebrate their national music story and we realized that Canada did not have a national music museum of its stories, of its collections that did only that on a 365 day basis. It took us about 10 years to realize that. Uh, and we went and traveled all over the world to look at facilities that did this type of work. And at that time, Calgary was going through a cultural renaissance. It was, and there was a real desire to build out the inner city. So the penny dropped, so to speak, we wanted to unlock that door out of frustration and show what we had. And we wanted to do something from Alberta that would help make Canada a stronger and more united country from a cultural perspective. So we invented the National Music Center as a result. So, I mean, that was kind of a, that's a kind of a condensed version of it. Oh, but that's great. That, that, kind of well done. The National Music Center still uh, uh, brings a lump to my throat when I see some of the <laughs> in there. When I not 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 just what we did there, but when you just as a Canadian going through there, uh, if you have any appreciation for music at all, and even if you don't, um, just understanding the thread of music in in our history and in our culture, it's a fantastic space. And uh, and I I have I have cried in the National Music Center. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to hear that. I'm so, glad to hear that. I just wanted you to know, and and uh, now our listening audience knows. So thanks for that, Andrew. We'll talk thanks more for, about that. Thanks, um, Vince. Finally, also joining us from Calgary, we have Michelle Sanders. Michelle has and continues to be involved in lots of cool and exciting projects, many in the arts and culture space. She has also recently joined us at Petraeo's Senior Council, and I couldn't be happier about that. Michelle has been on a number of podcasts, and sometime in the coming months, she might even be launching her own, but we'll see about that. More on that later. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you, and it's wonderful to be here with Andrew and my new friend, Bronwyn. <laughs> I have admired you, Michelle, ever since I came, first came to Calgary, but it was only in the last few years that we worked together and, and become not only colleagues, but friends. 
that uh, I really started to, to, to enjoy and think about all the things that you have done for the city and for the country. So we first worked together on a community engagement project uh, with the Sutina Nation, a truly wonderful and highly successful series of three community dinners. And I know that uh, this wasn't the first set of dinners that you did. And I know that you have some, some deep thoughts and learnings from those experiences. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our audience a bit about why they happened and what they were and what the outcomes were. Well, thank you. You know, um, I kind of sit on the shoulders of uh, a Calgary and Canadian hero, Michael Green, and I need to acknowledge him before we can even talk about this. Uh, Michael Green um, was the inspiration behind the Making Treaty 7 um, society and the large scale production that I think um, I th what, what happened with Michael is during his experience in 2012, when uh, Calgary was Canada's last cultural capital. And what came to him was that uh, we knew very, very little about our history with Indigenous people in this area. Most people didn't have a clue, uh, you know, that we sat, uh, that Mokinskis Calgary was in Treaty 7. And who were the nations? Who were the people here before us? And so that prompted this large-scale production. And it, I think it, it prompted me to think about um, how, on a smaller scale, how can we help, how can we build bridges of understanding between First Nations and non-First Nations? So we decided to organize a dinner series, an experience, because I, I strongly believe, and I think my colleagues will agree that art, art is what moves people. I mean, you can talk about stats and numbers and all the rest of it, but if you want to really transform someone, you do it through the arts and you do it through music and poetry and spoken word and theater. So we decided to organize the dinner series. So it was a culinary experience, but it was also an opportunity to engage all kinds of artistic methods um, from, you know, calling in the ancestors uh, to, to bring us together, to um, together with an artist at each table, creating an artwork that would represent our discussions. And, mm. and the most important thing was to understand a different way of knowing uh, from uh, the Indigenous people, which is from the land. So this was very successful. We did three dinners. We brought together 60 uh, leaders and influencers. Called, we called it the Common Ground Dinner Series. And then we brought the whole experience over to Tsutina. And that's the one, that's our neighbor, by the way, Tsutina. We are their neighbors. Uh, Tsutina, which is the uh, reserve right next door. Vincent, you participated in that one. And it was the first time uh, we started with a bus tour of the nation. We went beyond the no trespassing signs so that we, we actually drove over the, um, the, the whole uh, uh, ring road when it was under construction. It was fascinating to, to be on the land and then uh, experience everything from smudging to everyone brought uh, uh, something from their home that represented the future of mm. uh, our relationship together. So there were many ways that I think we moved people to a different uh, place of understanding. We called that series Nihiskaka uh, for our children. So anyway, that's great. Yeah. Thanks for doing that, Michelle. That was a really good overview. And um, I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that that particular experience driven from a nation out to its neighbor and inviting that neighbor into the nation was a relatively new one and not perhaps done uh, uh, on any scale across the country. In fact, the national chiefs actually asked Michelle and her team and everyone at Sutina about that because they're thinking about it as a model to maybe explore going forward. 
right? To really bring bridge the cultures and, and invite people onto the nation. When we drove on that bus past the no, no trespassing sign, there were university presidents and city aldermen and all these people who were saying things on the bus. I was listening going, I've never been here. Mm-hmm. right it was super interesting super so well, and just one little comment on that vincent you know what happened after that the mayor mayor nancy called chief lee crochild hackage lee crochild and said can we do this just for the two councils the chief and council has never sat down with the mayor and council and it, we did that that following that that was the very first time and we did the same experience wow. for both councils that's great well, thanks for hearing that story. That's a great story. Really great story. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 48th podcast. Uh, this is the fourth in a series of four podcasts we have done over the last year, each with a focus on the on the philanthropic trends in a specific nonprofit sector. We looked at education, we looked at health, and most recently, human services. Today, we're focused on trends in arts and culture philanthropy. Fundraising in the arts and for the arts is challenging on a good day. Throw in a crappy economy and a global health crisis and things get really interesting. Canadians arts or, Canadian arts organizations run the gamut from grassroots theaters, grassroots theaters to federally mandated and supported cultural institutions like the Museum of Nature and everything in between. So too do funding formulas. Funding sources for the arts and culture include everything from government arts councils to philanthropic patrons to adopt an artist programs to stunning gala events. Well, galas, not so much anymore. Uh, layer onto the fundraising landscape already fraught with challenge, a global pandemic. Theaters are dark and will be for months to come. Museums and galleries are shut or essentially so. Gate revenue, ticket sales, audience engagement and involvement all gone or suspended or at the very least uncertain. Most of Canada's arts and culture is currently being run from home offices by skeleton staff struggling to keep their audience connected, leave aside engaged. Cheery. Okay. So I've painted a pretty bleak picture and maybe that picture is partly in my own mind. Our three guests know much more than I do about what is actually going on with fundraising for the arts. Is it as bad as I've suggested? Are there silver linings? Bronwyn, let's start with you. You are working at Canada's National Arts Centre. What are you seeing? So, yes, thank you, Vincent. And um, yes, I am at Canada's National Arts Centre here in Ottawa Um, and uh, we're seeing we're seeing it's it's okay we're doing okay we recognize um that uh we have a different funding model and a different model of operation than than many arts organizations do um but uh what i'm seeing in our shop uh yeah there's no doubt that that covid has impacted fundraising on arts and culture and we can't talk about arts and culture especially not anymore without also talking about the work that we all need to do in terms of, of Indigenous relations, truth and reconciliation, all of that on, 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 on the diversity side, amplifying and giving agency to voices that have been historically underrepresented or excluded. So all of that that, that, um, that we're seeing today is, is with all of that work needing happening and continuing uh, as we go. So, um, but then I also wonder, uh, where is the line between the the COVID impact and the natural evolution and change? And and by necessity, by necessity, COVID has accelerated a lot, especially in online activity. 
um, arts organizations, our funding models had to change overnight. We're all about selling tickets and bums and seats and, and getting eyeballs on those artifacts and telling the stories that are attached to them about, about ourselves. So um, uh, this effort, though, it would have been needed anyway, and in albeit in a looser time frame, <laughs> even if even if we still could gather in larger numbers. So to tell you about what I'm seeing in our annual giving shop at the National Arts Center, our, our fundraising revenue is slightly lower than we've seen in recent years. And I don't think that was would be a surprise to anybody else, but it's not as much as we thought it might be. So our renewal rates are on par with previous years. Some donors are adjusting their giving out of necessity, but overall they're staying with us. And I think that's amazing. And this is um, for me particularly interesting in the performing arts environment because many annual giving programs like the one we run at the NAC uh, are based on optimizing that performance experience that the, the VIP parking, the donor lounge, the, the skip the lineups here and there, um, the, the concierge services for restaurant booking and all of that. I, I worried at first that our donors might pause their giving without these perks, but they haven't. They're, they're, they're with us. And if they, they loved us before and, and they, they, if they loved the arts before, they're loving the arts now and perhaps even more so. That's amazing to hear. And I am hearing that across the country. Andrew, I'm going to turn to you in just a second. Um, so so I, I don't want to draw any, any it's, it's always dangerous to kind of say, oh, look, this happened. So therefore this can happen. Um, but the, the, the idea that perks drive engagement and involvement is maybe something that needs to be um, uh, a little bit dissected going forward, uh, because clearly those are costly things to do. Um, and you've got people who are saying you're important whether you do it or not. Um, yeah. I also would like to come back to during the conversation at some point, the, that the, the rapid onset of digital marketing and communication. So that's really interesting that you said yeah. would have taken place over a much longer time period. Everyone's been saying it for years. And of course, the arts are no different than anybody else in that you don't have a ton of resources to suddenly just say, hey, oh, we're totally going to go digital when you've got all these other things going on. So I did, yeah. would like to come to back. That's an excellent stage setting. Andrew, I know you've got lots of thoughts on this. I can see it in your face. <laughs> Share with us. Uh, well, National Music Centre has got also a, a fairly unique funding model. I mean, it was primarily driven by philanthropy. Uh, in its inception, and then obviously governments and corporate sponsors came on on side to help build the capital building. But from an operational standpoint, our funding model has been largely driven by about 70% philanthropy and 30% earned revenue. And this year is our fifth year anniversary, incidentally, since we opened. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, quite a milestone um, on July the 1st. So the last year of the pandemic has certainly brought, I think, more than its fair share of silver linings to National Music Center. And we had to cut our expenses because we lost all of our earned revenues. And we, we unfortunately weren't able to keep uh, all of our staff uh, when this happened. Uh, we, were, we had to lay off more than 50% of our staff. I was gr really grateful that we were able to hire quite a few people back. And over the period of the last like six months, as we started to, as things started to, you know, sort of normalize and stabilize a little bit, 
I think the what what it has what the trends certainly have been for us have been this focus clearly on what good are you doing for others and how are you amplifying the voices of others and certainly you know from myself as a leader in this sector um, and certainly for the organization as a whole we have we have you know really made a very concerted effort to focus on what we weren't doing that we need to be doing so we've got an indigenous uh, program advisory group made up of of senior uh, elders and professionals in the music sector from across Canada, uh, from across a variety of unceded lands and territories across Canada. It's actually chaired by David McLeod from Treaty One Winnipeg. And it has been uh, a fantastic organization and group of people to work with to really amplify Indigenous voices across Canada, which is challenging to do. As you all know, there's 600 nations in Canada, um, uh, let alone one treaty. Uh, range. There's so many different nations, many different voices, but it's a challenge that we're excited about. And I would also argue or also state that the, the pandemic has also showed us regarding uh, the importance of including other racialized individuals from the community as well, whether it's through the Black Lives Matter movement or other movements. So we this has brought some greater focus to National Music Center from a leadership perspective at the board level, at the senior management level. So I'm really, really excited about that being a trend in as it relates to fundraising and philanthropy. And I would I just add three others quickly. The second trend for us that's very very much impacted, I think, from a fundraising philanthropy perspective that donors want to hear about is what are you doing? that is providing mutual benefit to other sectors through the arts. And those other sectors could be health. Mm -hmm. They could be in Calgary, the emerging tech sector. So where are those relationships? Donors, as you know, are becoming much more sophisticated than they've ever been. And they're asking those kinds of questions. Uh, thirdly, um, the, the, the impacts that you're having on, on other societal issues like mental health. Where, where are the relationships around health and well-being and mental health as it relates to the arts and how are those impacting philanthropy. Those are real conversations that are happening with donors and trends that we're responding to and that are producing some amazing results that I'm excited about. And then finally, of course, I think we're, this is like a whole podcast in and of itself, but it's the digital representation of everything we do um, from a digital perspective. So we, we jumped on board on this one last year when we um, reduced the size of our staffs, we began to invest in our digital footprint. So remaking the National Music Center in a, in a digital facsimile to turn it in and, and turn that into an international reach. And our online giving as a result has gone up. So that is a trend in philanthropy, individual online giving. And, and as a result, we launched Amplify 2.0, which is now the National Music Center's version of itself online. And we just announced it, uh, launched it on February 24th. We've, we've launched a partnership with Google and 50 other institutions around the world, around culture, specifically around the subject of electronic music and its cultural impact. So we are really making um, big investments in um, digital. And from a philanthropic perspective, our donors have supported us in hiring new staff, to fill this space, are excited about the possibilities of NMC becoming more digitally, um, its, its footprint expanding digitally, and our national music story being, as a country, being told through this digital means 
all over the world. So those are some real trends that, and silver linings that we've certainly seen as a result of the pandemic. And the one big circle that kind of encapsulates those four is it's brought some things into greater focus for us. And we've let go of some things that maybe were nice things to do, but maybe weren't things that we should be focusing on from a strengths perspective. And so lots to say about events, but uh, those are, that's, a, that's an overview from our perspective. Well, Michelle, I'm going to ask for your thoughts in just a second. That both Bronwyn and you actually made me feel better. Like I'm, I feel great after what I just heard. Um, I mean, there's lots of challenges to be sure, but those things, those silver linings are real and they're they're really important for this sector and really important to go forward. A little side note, and then I'll turn it to, to Michelle. It, it can be a small world. Uh, you know, without being too too facetious about this, um, you mentioned David McLeod and and uh, a friend of mine, a colleague. In fact, Ronwin knows Ron Bailey, uh, a friend of ours uh, who serves with us on the national committees. He lives in Winnipeg, longtime Winnipegger. He's seventy years old. He's a fantastic guy, very social, and he invited me to the Winnipeg Folk Festival a couple of years ago. Nice. And of course, nice. I I like Ron. I want to spend time with Ron and I like folk festivals. So, and I like Winnipeg. So it was all a a perfect thing. We show up and he's on the organizing committee, of course. And, and, and so we're at the VIP uh, session in the, in just before the festival starts and I'm meeting lots of nice people, including uh, a wonderful man named David McLeod. And, and so, and in fact, he's so generous uh, he meets me and within two seconds, he says, uh, you know, what, what's your Facebook name? I mean, you know, you know, that, that, that dives right into, you know, like we're, we're, we're now friends, right? Nice. It was such a great uh, story. And of course I began, and I know that he mentioned that he knew you, but I didn't realize this yeah. was happening. So that's great. And that's a great silver lining to have a national council and in your work around indigenous work and, and highlighting indigenous works in music has been fantastic. So thanks for that. Michelle, you've been listening, thoughtfully thinking, um, what are your thoughts on what Bronwyn and what uh, Andrews had to say? Well, it's always fun to go last so that, you know, uh, but sometimes it's not because all your, you know, all my good ideas have already been stated. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Michelle. We'll move on. No, so, yeah, okay, we'll move on. Um, I think we need to give a shout out to the federal government for all of the help and the support. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that would not be alive today were it not for a pretty quick response and a lot of consultation. Uh, back and forth. So um, Agreed. start with, start yeah. with that, right? Agreed, I mean, yeah. Across the board, the large, small, individual artists, everything. Um, so when I joined Vitreo, it was really fun because um, I joined as senior counsel. And the first thing I did is I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to make some calls. I'm going to make some calls out to some of the leaders in the community and, and get their sense of what the trends are. And um the um, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? I want before I go there, I'm going to echo what both of my colleagues have said. If we take, you know, take everything down to the individual, who has really? What are the most important skills that we've been needing in this pandemic era? Resilience and digital fluency. The the individuals who have, you know, kind of are surviving this mentally and probably, uh, you know, psychologically and, and financially have adapted. And the resilience for us in many ways as organizations is a, is a revenue stream resilience. And we can, we can get to that because I think we need to begin to look at that and, and see how are we going to diversify our revenue streams um, 
to, to be able to survive this. The other trends that I'm looking at outside of arts and culture, because if we see where the trends are in funding, then we can adapt as arts, or arts and culture organizations. So where's the funding going? There's a lot of funding going to technology, right? We know that, uh, whether that's uh, computer science, AI, gamification. I think that and gamification is simply loyalty programs. It's really just a it's just an expansion of what a loyalty program is. And um, so I think we could be looking at that. I think that people are funding that. I think government is funding it. We know that Melanie Jolie way back when she was the minister yeah. introduced this whole let's invest in digitalization. Good for her because in a sense uh, she she saw what was coming. I remember uh, uh, when I was at the Business for the Arts Summit that Robert Lepage uh, spoke eloquently about um, she felt that the arts weren't keeping up with technology. He felt that actually technology wasn't keeping up with art. So that's a whole conversation in itself. <laughs> so technology is one thing that I think people are investing in. So if we are um, looking as an organization, mm. I think we're going to get funding for that. The other one, oh. of course, is indigenization. We've talked about it. Huge funds going to capacity building. Corporations are investing in it because they are either operating on treaty lands, unceded lands, traditional lands adjacent to. And what that has done, thanks to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls to action, the employees, their employees as individuals are learning a lot more about our history, our shared history. Um, so there's a lot of work in reparation, reconciliation, but a lot in capacity building. So, um, and I think it, it, it's so important in any event. And as we talked about art being what is transformative, we as arts organizations can do a lot in the world of educating through art. So through our indigenization programming, um, our indigenous programming, and there's, there's a, I think there's funding for that. Uh, I think we need to be thinking about mergers and alliances. Um, I think that, you know, for you, as we said earlier, you two, uh, the National Arts Center and uh, Bell Studio and the National Music Center, you're huge. Like, mm. I almost say too big to fail, but, you know, some of the stats coming out right now, um, uh, these are these are American, but I, I don't think this is going to be very different over here. You know, 50% of organizations are not going to survive for more than three months, 75% for no more than six months. And maybe 30% have a surplus. So we've got to be thinking about that. And you don't want to be thinking about mergers and alliances when you're ready to close your doors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that can look like, and you as the larger organization may be able to reach out and think about some of the, the smaller organizations that are in your sector that might benefit, right? Like I always think the approach is, it, it needs to be a tool in the arsenal. So we, we have to move from scarcity thinking to long-term strength, sustainability, and impact. So one plus one can equal three, right? And of course, uh, a merger and alliance can look like anything from long-term integration. It could be restructuring. It can be uh, back office consolidation, right? Anything from dating mm -hmm. to marriage. Anything from dating to marriage. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. and, you know, and you can ask yourself first, like, hey, start with the why, and then the how will follow. So I'm, I'm looking at the, the trends right now around um, how do we become more resilient? And then I think we need to talk about microgiving. That's yeah. a huge trend. Yeah. And how have we tapped into that? You know, are we tapping into those smaller donors, um, but that build community, 
in an important way and build resilience. So, uh, Vincent, those have been my 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 thoughts. Along okay, so we've got lots to work with here. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so just set your watches. We're going to go for another three hours. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but, but we could. But we could. We, but we could. Um, we could easily. And um, and 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 so there are other podcasters. So uh, I know you were at that last comment I saw, uh, Bronwyn going, "Yeah, that's right in my wheelhouse." Those micro donors. So um, I'm wondering. We've we've heard from each other. We've 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 had some things. Which thread would you like to pull on? I mean, we talked about the digitization, and we talked about some silver linings. I think we talked about the fact that um, rather than um, look at the indigenous indigenization as as trying to um, make reparations, why don't we also look at uh, at actually uh, celebrating and raising up and being part of as well. Um, you know, like which what you've done at the National Music Center by raising the the profile of Indigenous music, um, which has been fantastic. So, what, what threads? Who, who do you have a, an idea about some threads? I don't want to put them in there, so I'm giving you guys some opportunity to say which one do you want to pull on for the next uh, uh, ten or fifteen minutes, or even five minutes. I like I have a, I liked what Michelle was saying just about mergers and acquisitions, and another way yes. to I, I think another way to say it as well in our sector is. Uh, Collaborations. Yes. Uh, right. Collaboration. I, uh, uh, did I say acquisitions? I'm sorry. Did I say acquisitions? Oh my yeah. God. That's yeah. my, yeah. my yeah. former yeah. MBA. But, 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 but it is. Okay. Yeah. Oh okay. God. It's okay. Uh, lawyers say yeah. acquisition and, and, um, and the rest of humanity says collaboration. But, yeah. um, but I, I, but I would say, but I would say this, but I would say this to Michelle's point. I think it is uh, an incredibly valid point because uh, the trend that we're certainly seeing in philanthropy, certainly from our donors, and certainly broadly speaking, is what what intersections yep. do the arts and culture have with other sectors? And again, I, I know we have people on our board who have their own interests. You know, whether it's health, mental health, wellness, um, and I, you know, from you know my work in the Music City movement across this country, there is a very strong connection between music specifically in the development of tech sectors. And that has been studied, very well documented, mostly in American examples, but to a certain degree in Canadian examples as well. Um, and to a certain degree in some European examples, the, the relationship of how do we collaborate better with organizations that may be, uh, to, to, again, to Michelle's point, that need um, back-end support so that they can deliver what they primarily do from a programmatic support. Um, and also um, it's things around basic real estate, like some organizations own their own buildings. And in some cases, they're having a tough time sustaining those monthly operating costs. You know, here at the National Music Center, I, we have a couple of undeveloped spaces in our building on the west side of the street that we have been thinking about, like, who can we give this space to? Who, who could use this space? Now, like I, I'm, I'm lucky. I've been able to come into the office. Working from home for me is a bit of a challenge. Uh, I won't get into why. So I've been coming into the office since June, pretty much every day. And, and it's given me, again, getting back to silver linings and focus, looking at a fairly empty building. And it's helped me, certainly, and my team come to some realization that there is more that we can do to help other cultural organizations and perhaps other sectors like tech integrate the work that we're doing to create frankly a cluster a more a more a bigger cluster because in certainly in philanthropy i have it there's a there's always a line between 
good, well-meaning individual people who have influence and affluence, who want to help the nonprofit sector, but in the same conversation, they are quiet and silent investors in emerging for-profit sector initiatives. It always happens. And, and so why, again, why can't we think about deeper collaborations and partnerships moving from dating to marriage and everything in between, again, to use Michelle's excellent analogies? Um, I think that is a very important one. And it includes um, um, working much more closely with Indigenous communities. It includes uh, working more closely with other racialized communities as well, because they are too start trying to run their own arts organizations, their own for-profits, their own community service organizations as well. And there is a benefit. Collaboration is hard. It's like any relationship. It requires compromise and you have to turn down your ego. And in, and this, and there's, as we all know, sometimes in our space, there is that because artists have very strong views about the way something needs to be. So, or in a particular expression. So how do we bring collaboration and the mindset around collaboration closer together so that we can work towards a greater good and share our resources that we have, share the abundance we have with others to make a greater impact. And I, I, I think that that one example that Michelle gives, I think covers a lot of large macro subjects that we're talking about today, very much so. And I think it's a, I think it's a really, really important one. Uh, well, I'm glad you went to the collaboration corner. Um, uh, you had me right up until ego, and then I was out. Uh, uh, there's no way I'm going to give up mine. Uh, yeah. No, of course. Uh, you know what I mean, though, Ben. Right? No, Andrew, I was kidding. Of course. I know. I know. I'm absolutely serious. I was just being a little uh, self-deprecating. <laughs> um, Bronwyn, I saw you nodding in violent agreement. And so yeah. um, what do you want to say about what Andrew or, or Michelle had to say? So, so this whole, idea, I couldn't agree more with, with what both of you are saying. I'm, I'm Michelle's term of too big to fail. Um, we, the National Arts Center um, was born out of an act of parliament. We do um, have a, a different funding model, but it might not be what everybody suspects. And we take it so closely to heart, that idea of collaboration. So so we're about 50% earned revenues, 50% um, government funding. And we know that uh, as a large national organization, we are in a unique position to lead the way in this sector recovery that we're, we're going through right now. So one of the first things we did um, almost a couple of days to the year ago now was uh, when we when the world got its lockdown order on in March. Uh, in it took a, I think a few days before our amazing executive producer of, of popular popular music and variety Heather Gibson was able to create this incredible program uh, recognizing that artists, especially emerging artists who uh, work in the gig economy were going to have no paycheck. And so we created um, Canada Performs, which was a partnership with Facebook, which basically um, paid artists for their work and gave them a platform. And the entire, I, I don't think I'm, I'm exaggerating here when I say that uh, a, a, so the majority of NAC staff dropped what they were doing 
and started working on, on this program. We learned how to moderate comments on Facebook. We learned how to do, like, and this might be someone who has completely never even been on Facebook before. <laughs> We're all learning new jobs in support of this program because we know how important it is. Um, the Canada for Performs program has grown into it has evolved. It's grown into something bigger and, and amazing. And, and Heather's like plowing away on, on uplifting voices uh, that, that need that representation, that deserve that representation. And uh, we're all behind her with it. The, the, Andrew uses the term collaborations, uh, theaters, co-productions, right? Like um, a couple of years ago, well, I think I'm going to get my history wrong. I could be completely wrong, but I would estimate in the last 10 years, five to 10 years, um, the NAC started uh, really talking seriously with intent. Um, we recognized the need had become ever more urgent uh, and with the Indigenous community rightly asserting that uh, creating Indigenous works uh, without the full involvement of Indigenous voices was just, it's not going to fly. It's its not to be done anymore. So. Um, we consulted with uh, Indigenous artists, with Indigenous leaders. We established an advisory committee involving recognized Indigenous uh, artists, youth, elders, and NAC representatives. And that led to the establishment of Canada's first Indigenous, national Indigenous theatre, the only one of its kind in its world. And Kevin Loring and uh, Laurie Marchand, the two, uh, the, the artistic uh, director and managing director are, are a tag team with their other team, their greater team who are doing amazing things uh, in, this, in this arena. And I'm so proud to be associated with them. And then Jillian Kylie over in our English theater department, She's, um, she, we're all, we're, we're all behind this. We have a new partner with Black Theatre Workshop out of Montreal. They're the, um, uh, they're currently celebrating their 50th anniversary. They're the uh, oldest Black theatre company in Canada. Mm -hmm. And for our, um, they are now the newly created um, uh, co-create, uh, where are we, sorry? the, the co-curating company in residence. So they will have agency over half of our English theater budget, completely equal to mount their, their, their works, do their work and, and do that on the national stage. And it's, we, we, we are so excited about this collaboration where we, we recognize that we're in a, in a unique position and we wanna make sure that we're buoying all boats well, you just tagged into, into that. Well, first of all, uh, I, I did tear up a couple of times there at, at what we do as a country for each other. Uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty moved by that. The, uh, the Facebook thing is a big deal. And I remember when you guys did it and uh, I liked that everyone got involved. That was awesome. And so yeah, Jim uh, Petty kicked it off. With I know, I know it's, that is awesome. And, but Andrew made a comment earlier about uh, people are asking us and we're asking ourselves and it's the right question. What good are we doing for others? Yeah. And uh, I think that is, uh, it, that is at the heart of collaboration. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, that is right, right there with that. So that was a fantastically moving um, uh, idea. And I think I don't want people to lose sight of what uh, a, a kind of a throwaway comment you had at the beginning, 
which is a stereotype that Canadians believe for any agency that's been built out of an act of parliament. You did say that 50% of your revenue was earned. Yeah. And 50% of his, and, and that is one of the, the big challenges we have in arts and culture is getting people to understand what, how exactly we are funded because most Canadians shift the needle on government funding to be much larger than it is and have a, a, a not that it shouldn't be recognized. Don't get me wrong. As Michelle said earlier, we owe a, a lot to the federal government and we are lucky as a country. Um, our arts funding councils, uh, you know, they make other countries, including the U.S. arts councils, look like dwarfs. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we have very uh, robust funding councils, even though they have been under pressure. Um, but um, but that collaboration and what are we doing for others? We have um, a few minutes before I want to tie a bow on this great episode. Um, so I want to give uh, folk, anyone who wants to sort of weigh in or, or, or put a point forward. We've, we've we heard from Andrew and from Bronwyn, but uh, we can hear you again. Michelle, you've been sitting there thinking again. I can see the smoke coming out of your ears. Oh, <laughs> out of my out of my ear, my headphones. Yep, yep, you yep, see the exactly. smoke. That's why I have them on. So you yeah, can keep see it in. the smoke. And um, so I, I love this, that we're talking about meaning. You know why? Because yeah. why? What, what do we do at, at fundraisers, right? I mean, that's what we all do. You, you, you're fundraising. Andrew, you're the head fundraiser at your outfit. I mean, like it or not, at the end of the day, the buck stops mm-hmm. with you. I always think, though, we're not, uh, you know, it's, I hate to say this. It's not so much about the money. We are solving a donor's problem, okay? When That's what we do. We, we have to believe that our organizations are giving meaning to the individuals who love us. We are aligning their passion with our mission. So when I, I think that what this has shown us, and I just want to go quickly back to micro giving, let's make that community bigger. Mm-hmm. We can make yeah. that community bigger. Look what Benevity has done, mm-hmm. right? It's completely democratized how large organizations give because it's given to their employees a voice in not only how they want to spend their money, but how they want to spend their time and their energy. And it's given them an opportunity to find others like them, right, in their communities who love what we do. So I think we need to be focusing a little bit more on that. And that will also help. You know that they've got 12 million individual donors, Benevity, when you think about it. So are we, you know, how are we harnessing grassroots giving even the big guys need to be thinking about that that's a great comment um i wonder if we could um you know we talked about it we skipped over it we touched on it um we didn't really pull a thread on it but for me as someone who is not working every day in the arts and culture sector but is a huge lover of that in fact we would we would go to theater every tuesday that was what we did you know that i used to do that and and um and and it, this period where people have been denied this opportunity for their for to to embrace culture has actually given culture a huge uh, amount of credibility and importance in our in our society. I would say I think that's a big silver lining that if we can capture that going forward, people's mental health has depended on their access to culture. Mm-hmm. Before we would tell people that, and everyone would go, yeah, 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 right. Uh, you know, it, it, the people that know would know and the people that didn't would go, yeah, that's marketing language. But now when we've gone through it, we realize that it's actually a, a, a critical factor 
to the human experience. It's not just something for the rich to go in and score. And uh, I really think that's an important lining for me on there. So I, I would agree with you, uh, Vincent, wholeheartedly. Um, in particular, thinking about one demographic of, of our audience at the National Arts Centre is seniors. Um, COVID has imposed uh, a degree of isolation on them that that has been particularly challenging. And, and I'm thinking of a few, few donors who don't have computers at home, who don't have email if, if I need to pick up the phone or write a letter if I if I want to speak to them. But um, what, we, what we are seeing is that uh, we're, we're seeing an increase in response from, from our donors to, to not only say, yes, I'm attending this virtual event that you're doing, or I'm tuning into the live stream, but they're giving, and then they're responding to the newsletter that, that I've sent them by saying, hey, thanks. You know, like it's, it's good to, good to, Good to connect, right? And it's and it's just really I, lovely, lovely sentiments that they're sharing. And to know that that in that small way, for those few moments of their day, that I'm I'm uh, me and my team and the NAC, the National Arts Center, are helping to to brighten that day just a little bit to ease that <sighs> lifetime of of isolation we've got going. Is it it means so so much so much well that's a great way to to kind of tie a bow is the connection that we've caused the importance of arts and culture to the fabric of our lives and so i want to thank each of you it's been a fantastic conversation there's no doubt that there's i i probably just listed four or five other podcasts i, I even circled one just on the digitization andrew <laughs> aspects that you talked about there's yeah. so much more and i would love to have all of you and i will have if you'll have if you'll allow us each of you back on the podcast so thank you yeah thank you and andrew and yeah. and and bronwyn and michelle but before we go before we go i want to give each of you an opportunity to uh to, to let people know a little bit more about uh you know what you think is important what that you want them to remember uh what your favorite ice cream flavor is uh where they can reach you that kind of so whatever you feel like you can you can pontificate you can talk about an event uh you can do whatever you want but we're going to start with you bronwyn anything you want our listening audience to know yeah Thanks, Vincent. So I've, I've been giving thought to what I want to say here. And this might seem off the wall at first, but bear with me. Here it goes. I'm I'm a sucker for disaster and post-apocalyptic movies, books, stories, you name it. So you must recently, be in heaven. Oh, I've been training all my life for this, Vincent. I have. <laughs> okay, keep going, keep going. <laughs> so the other day I watched one of those uh, ticking clock race to save humanity from the planet killing comet that's about to crash into us. And the movie started out with the lead character getting an alert on his phone saying yep. you and your Greenland. family pre-selected, right? You're all good. You're an engineer. We need you to help rebuild the planet. And it got me thinking, um, I'm pretty sure there weren't any fundraisers on that list. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> but I really hope that there were artists. I really hope that there were musicians, storytellers, dancers, visual artists, historians who can tell us the story of why this object, this physical thing is important to us. Um, these are the stewards of, of our many different cultures. And all of us through this pandemic, we know we've been talking about this, have sought comfort or escape 
course, in some way through the arts through this period. So we've we when the pandemic is behind us, we'll look to the arts again to once again challenge and provoke us to to honor and remember important stories, and you know as always to make us laugh and cry. So I guess my parting thoughts here are to to celebrate the first responders, the scientists, the frontline workers, the people with the STEM brain, and to remember to support our artists too, so that our heroes will not go unsung. Mm-hmm. See what I did there? Awesome. Well done. <laughs> well done. <laughs> All right, yeah. Michelle, you're up second, and Andrew, you're going to have the closing comments. So, Michelle, what, oh do, you, what do you want people to hear, and what do you want them to uh, well, talk about? I've been thinking, if you're an organization out there, bring your peeps together. Bring in a board member, bring in an outsider and have a look. How can you add resilience to your revenue stream? Just think about that. As an individual, we've talked so much about indigenization. Let's do some work. Um, I've got my little truth and reconciliation pocketbook right in front of me. It fits in my pocket. It's tiny, but it covers all kinds of wonderful things that we can each do you know, have a, go go to the website for the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action. Go down some rabbit hole there and have some fun. And the third thing, I've talked about micro-giving and what we can all do. Maybe pick a not-for-profit organization today. It can be in the arts or not. And make a small debt gesture today. A micro-donation, which can be of money or time or write a post. I'm going to make a donation today to Aventa, which is a women's treatment center in Calgary. So that's what I'm going to do. Thanks for that, Michelle. Very thoughtful. Andrew, you get to close us out today. So no pressure and um, don't screw up. <laughs> Thanks, Vince. Uh, well, it's been a real uh, you know, honor to be here today with, uh, with Michelle and Brenwyn and um, Bronwyn, a uh, beautiful Welsh name that I just learned about. And um, I, you know, my sort of closing comments for today are, again, echoing the, the excitement. Uh, I think that what we can do in the arts is to make this land that we live on, that we share, this place that we now call Canada, a stronger place through music and the arts, you know, by collaborating more by taking the time to learn someone else's language that maybe you don't speak, whatever that language is. C'est pas seulement le français. There are other languages as well. I think uh, I think that's incredibly important. I mean, I'm a I'm a sucker for documentaries, so that's that's something that I like to binge on on Netflix when I'm not playing the piano or an instrument. And I recently uh, watched this fantastic documentary called Cuba Libre, which was really about the struggles that Cuba's gone through for the last. 500 plus years. It's a fascinating documentary. A lot of it is in Spanish. And uh, I just, I can, I love to delve into history and how, you know, trends and, sh- and trends have shaped a place, a, a place, a given place in this case, Cuba. And I think it's certainly important for um, what the arts can do. I certainly try to do this with my kids as much as possible is to introduce them to places where they don't speak the language and introduce them to places where they don't eat, normally eat that food. Um, so that they can become accustomed to uh, living in harmony with others. And Canada has always been a place where um, where uh, we embrace that I- idea. And now I think through music and certainly the arts as a whole, we need to really ramp that up, amplify that that message and to make Canada stronger. These ideas 
of, you know, I lived through two referendums growing up in Quebec. And I've seen what that can do to people and to families. And sometimes when I hear echoes of that in our home province, new home province of Alberta, I just say, no, we need to work harder to learn how to understand each other. And the arts and music specifically in our case can help bridge those divides and those gaps. So I think that there's a, a lot we can do in this recovery and to become more resilient, to support each other, uh, to give to each other, and to always think it, to always think about how can the arts make this world a better place and to advocate on that behalf to those who don't fully understand that. And I think that's our job. And I'm, you know, uh, our team is, uh, you know, motivated to do that every day because we believe in it in our heart and, and we're prepared to keep the collaboration, the collaboration spirit going to ensure that we stay united and grow stronger together. That was a great closer, Andrew. I am so inspired by the three of you. I'm serious about that. What a great, uh, great time with all of you. And with that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next time when we focus on disruption. Philanthropy has been especially disrupted during the pandemic. What are the lingering effects for the rest of 2021 and beyond? Listen in next time to find out when we will be joined by Kay Sprinkle Grace, Paula Atfield, and Mark Bloomberg. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Katja Asomanning and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O Group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting our website betrayalgroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.